liberal theologians that will try to say Matthew is just confused and it's really the same account, but he wrote about it twice, which I don't believe that for a second. Um, I believe it's, it's two separate separate accounts. I believe God's word is preserved and it's inspired and we, we can trust in God's words. Um, so I believe it's two separate accounts. They're in different locations. There's a different crowd. I believe one crowd was Jewish, one crowd was Gentile. Uh, we have different details of this event. Um, so I do believe it's two separate events. Um, and it very well could have been that there were other instances of Jesus feeding lots of people. It could be that Matthew only recorded two of them. Uh, Jesus was powerful enough to do that. Um, he completely could have. John 21, 25 tells us, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. So we know Jesus performed a lot of miracles. Jesus did a lot of things that aren't even recorded. So I don't know why it would be hard for people to accept the fact that there was a feeding of the 5,000 and there was a feeding of 4,000. I, I don't know why that's difficult uh, for people to grasp. My God is big enough to do that on multiple occasions. There were a few things that jumped out to me in this passage, you're familiar with, we've looked at a lot of, a lot of the feeding of the 5,000, although it was separate, it was also kind of similar where he fed a lot of So some details that, that jumped out to me, we're going to look at as we go through the passage, and then at the end I want I want to wrap it all up with, with some different thoughts that, that jumped out to me from this passage. But one of the aspects that I loved seeing was the compassion of Jesus on clear display. Uh, there's no arguing here against the compassion of Jesus Christ. Don't miss his compassion. Don't take it for granted. We, we see these miracles, and, and we see these stories, and we see Jesus working, and we can say, wow, that was great, that's a wonderful story, but don't miss his compassion. Um, I don't believe that's, that's the main thing that we see here, and we'll get to that at the end. Um, but I love seeing his compassion, and I don't want to miss it as we read through this. So we're going to be studying in Matthew 15, but before we do that, let's look at Mark chapter 8, and we'll read, we'll read this story from Mark's perspective. Mark 8, we'll look at verses 1 through 10. We'll read those, and then we'll go right back to Matthew. You should be used to me doing this over the past two years in our study through the, the gospel. Mark 8, verse 1, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude, because they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for diverse of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have you? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and gave thanks, and break, and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. So they did eat, and were filled and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand, and he sent them away. And straightway he entered into the 
shift in his disciples, and he came into the parts of Galilee. So we see the story. There it is, story. Now let's go to Matthew, and then I want to break down some of these details, which I know you're familiar with. I've heard this story for over 30 years, I'm sure. But I want us to look at the details, and I want us to kind of dive into the story, make it real life, try to look at the emotions of the disciples and the people and that, that Jesus would have been experienced here in the different details. And let's let God's word come fresh to us and come alive to us today. Matthew 15, verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee and went up into a mountain and sat down there. So remember where they're at. We're going to do a quick review here over the past few weeks of our study. Remember what had been going on. They, they had left Galilee. They had, they had went up north, up on the coast. Remember, I tire and by Sidon, they're up on the, port, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they were in Gentile territory. Remember, they tried to go in this house to be alone, and they couldn't be alone. This woman finds him, and the crowd finds him. So we have Jesus walking around with his disciples. I believe there was a lot of personal training time there with Jesus and his disciples. That's my thought there. Think however you'd like to on that. But they have like a 120 to 150 mile journey that they went on. That's, that's a long walk. Um, you'd imagine there was some interesting conversation between Jesus and the disciples. So they go way up north along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And then they, they come back down. They, they go over to the east side of the Jordan River. Um, into a region of Decapolis. Decapolis, we talked about last week, means ten cities. So this was a region with ten cities. We find them in our study today on a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee. So this would be on the east side of the Jordan River. It would be kind of at the, the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, up on a mountainside, if you can picture this. So they sit down. That's what verse 29 tells us. And they sat down there. So we have Jesus and the disciples sitting on this mountain, which I could imagine was kind of nice after walking 120 to 150 miles. I imagine them sitting there just, just having some good conversation. As they're sitting there, the multitude starts to come. So I try to picture them sitting there, and, and here they come. Here the people come. And they can watch them coming to them. And I'm sure that was interesting because they're bringing crippled people and, and lame people. I'm sure there was group carrying people who couldn't walk or, or helping guide people who couldn't see or who couldn't hear or have these disabilities. And you see the multitudes start coming up to them. Verse number 30, And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. There were a lot of people coming. The text said there was great multitudes. And I said before, I believe this is a, a Gentile crowd here in a Gentile area known for worshiping false gods and, and false, false god worship. So I believe the majority of this crowd was a Gentile crowd. We have a crowd looking for Jesus to do something for them. They had heard of this Jesus. Here is Jesus sitting on a hill in their territory, and they're coming to Jesus looking for help. They had heard Jesus could heal. They had no hope for help except for Jesus, and here they come. Their gods had done nothing for them. The statues they prayed to had done nothing for them. So they hear Jesus is in town. They start going to him. They're blind. 
lame people, blind people, dumb people, meaning they couldn't speak. There's maimed people. And I want to I wanna pause and think on this for a second. Because this is something I've, I've overlooked a lot. Thinking of maimed people coming to Jesus for healing. Maimed means mutilated, deformed, unable to be used, even totally gone. So you have people coming to Jesus for healing who could have been missing an arm, or missing a leg, or a hand, or a foot. They're coming to Jesus looking for healing. So for Jesus to heal them, he would have to create a hand, or a finger, or a foot, or a leg. Have you considered that? That's big time. You, you can't fake that. It's not like Jesus healed a backache that you thought you had. <laughs> you go there without an extremity, and Jesus could give you one. Isn't Jesus powerful enough to do that? He's creator God. The one who in, involved in creation had the, the power and the ability to speak the world into existence. What does he like? Not only restore sight to restore hearing, but to to help crippled people walk, but also to give you a, a arm or a leg. I mean, wow! To me, that was just that was just crazy. To think about that. And I think it helps give us insight a lot of why this crowd was sticking around for three days. I mean, you see Jesus giving people arms and legs. That's a big deal. But what we see from these disabilities is it included pretty much any disability that you can imagine. And the crowd is bringing people to Jesus to heal them. They cast them down at Jesus' feet. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? To, to cast. Cast means to throw down with haste. I would, I would imagine they were gentle. <laughs> Jesus couldn't heal them, no matter how hard they think. But, but we, can you picture them all three coming to Jesus? Jesus, help this person. Heal this person. They need help. They cast them at Jesus' feet, close to Jesus, is the picture that we see. They were hurriedly, excitedly, bringing their injured, their, their lame, their, their hurt, their deformed to Jesus, casting them at his feet. They wanted their injured family or friends as close to Jesus, as quickly as they could get him there. Look at the compassion of Jesus on display. Because it says that he healed them. There was a lot of healing going on. The way I understand, you cast him down, he's healing. Jesus didn't owe these people anything. As far as, he wasn't forced to have to heal them. But yet he did. And we can see his compassion on this foot. We have all-powerful creator God with compassion on display. And we see his power on display. We see evidences of the fact that Jesus is God. Not just a healer. Not just a good teacher. Jesus is God. The Messiah. The Lamb of God to take away the sin. Look at verse 31. In so much that the multitude wondered. 
when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole. You see that? We just talked about that. The maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. This is real life stuff. This is a story that truly happened, an event that actually took place. <clears throat> Think about this. The people were amazed. We can get we can get numb because we're so familiar with these stories. But these people that day were not amazed. They're not like, oh, I've seen Jesus do this before. No big deal. They were amazed. They wondered. They marveled. They were struck with awe. They saw something that defied human explanation. The result of the compassion, the result of this display of power, was, I believe here is the big picture of the result of, of ministry. The end of verse 31. And they glorified the God of Israel. That's the big picture. That's what it's all about. Glorifying God. And we'll talk about this at the end, but that's, that's what our life as believers is about, is bringing glory to God. It's, it's not, we're not here so that God can serve us. Or God, you owe me this. God, do this, this for me. We're here to bring glory and honor to God. That, that's kind of counterculture a little bit there. To think of, of serving someone besides yourself. Our, our goal, our purpose is to bring glory to God. And here we see Jesus healing. We see the crowd in awe. We see the crowd is glorifying the one true God, glorifying this, this God of, of Israel. Verse 32. So all this is going on. Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude. Can you, can you imagine Jesus verbalizing that? We should be able to. We, we can look back and we can see him living it out in the sacrificial lamb, giving, giving himself to be the atonement for sin. We should be able to, to imagine that. But to hear that coming from the lips of Jesus, I have compassion on the multitude. I imagine, this is me, I imagine Peter thinking, we can see that. You've been healing for three days. We haven't eaten in three days. We can see your compassion. We can see that you care about these people. But Jesus actually said out loud, I have compassion or I feel compassion. We have, we have other authors writing about Jesus. Jesus was moved with compassion. But here we have Matthew reporting for us that Jesus actually said, I have compassion. Jesus has shown over and over that he has compassion, but here he verbalizes it. I just want to define compassion here to be moved in one's inward parts, or what we would think of as the seat of emotions. Our English word compassion means to suffer with. A feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the pain and remove its cause. Interesting. Jesus says, I have compassion. 
He saw there was a need, and, and he's going to do something to, to help that. We see Jesus having compassion for spiritual needs. He came to seek and to save the lost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world. We see, we see this compassion on display. There's a problem. God gave a remedy. Jesus also had compassion for physical illness, for diseases, for deformities. He healed people. But here we see Jesus having compassion over the fact that the people were hungry. I mean, my attitude would have been, if you're hungry, maybe you should have brought more lunch. <laughs> maybe you should have planned on being here a little longer than a day. But I mean, um, what a great reminder that God is aware and cares deeply about even the little, tiny details of our life. Like, yes, we see God performing big miracles, but he's moved with compassion. He, he starts to feel for these people because they're hungry, because they haven't eaten in three days. I am so thankful that God cares about us, about our daily needs. There is nothing too unimportant for God in our life. He, he cares about us. Remember the study that we did in Matthew? Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what you shall put on. Is not life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air. For they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into farms, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto the statue? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take the thought uh, for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. But God cares. Jesus cared that the people were hungry. And he was moved with compassion. The crowd had been there for three days. Can you imagine that? Day one, you're there. You, you see Jesus doing this stuff. It gets dark. You go to sleep. You wake up. You're still there. Jesus heals again another day. Third day comes, Jesus heals again. And you're just not willing to go home. You want to stay around to the point where if you actually walk home, you're going to pass out along the way. You're going to faint along the way because you had a eaten. But they were exposed to the power of Jesus on display. Three days in, they need some food. The word faint there is talking about collapsing. Verse 32, I have compassion on the multitude because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. Faint is talking about collapsing. 
Jesus feels and recognizes their need, and he is going to do something about it. Did you see Jesus said, I will not send them away fasting? Like, this has not happened. I am not sending these people away fasting. He's getting his disciples in on this, his plan. I would imagine it sounded a little familiar to the disciples. They had just done this within a month or two or three months. They had just seen Jesus feed a bunch of people. Verse 33, here's the disciples' response. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? Okay, Jesus, you're going to feed the people. Where are we going to get enough food to fill? Phil is talking about to satisfy, to completely satisfy these people, not just give them a cracker and send them on their way. Jesus was going to satisfy the hunger of these people. This massive crowd. First response, it's an interesting response. I, I question that they, that they were doubting Jesus here. I question it was if it was a lack of faith here. Jesus doesn't rebuke them. I kind of think that that maybe they were just wondering, okay, Jesus, you say you're going to feed them. How are you going to do it? What's, what's the plan for this time? You can think totally different if you want. That's, that's totally up to you. But surely they hadn't forgotten the last feeding of the 5,000. How would you forget that? Feed all the people? 5,000 men and 25,000 people easily. And then there's leftovers? You're not forgetting that. I mean, you helped pass the food out. You're not helping that. So I don't think they really doubted you. I think maybe they just wondered how Jesus was going to do it this time. Okay, Jesus, uh, how are we going to do this? What's, what's the plan here? Verse 34, And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven and a few little fishes. Okay, so Jesus is taking inventory. Well, how much food do we have? Seven and two fishes, okay. Here's what we're going to do. And Jesus saith unto them, or sorry, verse 35, and he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. So it, it sounds sounds familiar. He has the multitude sit down. Maybe he broke them down into organ, organized groups like he did last time. You know, there's the group of 50 and, and made it easier for the disciples to pass out the bread. I don't know how it went. Verse 36, and he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks. I don't want to skip over that. Jesus gave thanks. This. He thanked God for providing for this for them. It didn't seem like enough to feed a multitude. I mean, they're not huge, massive loaves here. They're probably a little nice flatbread. And Jesus gives thanks. He left no doubt where this miracle was coming from. So he, he gives thanks, he breaks them, and he starts giving them to the disciples. And the disciples to the multitude. For me, I really appreciated how Jesus let the disciples get involved here. Because I believe Jesus could have just said, everyone have food. Everybody has food and they're eating. But Jesus lets the disciples here be involved in the miracle. He lets them be involved in serving the people. And can't you see here where Jesus could be teaching the disciples where you're not too good to serve people. Yes, you're my apostles. Yes, yes, you're my chosen ones to, to spread this the gospel to the world. 
but you're not too good to serve people. Jesus kept breaking the food and giving it to the disciples. The disciples kept giving the food to the people. So the bread just keeps multiplying. God keeps providing. The disciples keep coming back, keep giving food. People are getting full. The food did not run out. Verse 37, and they did all eat and were filled. That's important. Everybody ate. Everybody got full. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full. Remember the first time how many baskets there were? Twelve baskets. This time there's seven baskets. Now, it's interesting. It's two different Greek words used from the first, the first style of basket that they used that they picked up twelve and the second style of basket that they picked up seven. Now, this just could be me being a nerd and, and looking at the two different Greek word. But there's two different styles of basket. The first, the first basket when they gathered 12 baskets from the feeding of the 5,000 was specifically known as a Jewish basket. Kofinos is what it's from. It's a small basket used when traveling and it wouldn't hold a lot. It would hold a little bit. The basket used here was typically known um, as a larger basket from the Greek word sporis, and it's translated a hamper. Little difference between a basket and a hamper. Usually this was a much larger basket. This is the type of basket, this is the Greek word that is used when, when, um, when Paul was lowered over the wall in a basket, in Damascus. Remember that story, Acts 9.25? So this could be a large basket. Can you picture the disciples dragging around these big baskets, gathering all the leftovers? Not just 12 small baskets, but possibly a basket big enough to hold a man. So they gather all these leftovers, and there's seven baskets left. Verse 38, And they that did eat were 4,000 men, beside women and children. So easily 15 to 20,000 people Jesus could have fed here with seven loaves of bread and a few fishes. 15,000 people at least had experienced the loving, powerful, compassionate Savior. <clears throat> Verse 39, And he sent away the multitude and took ship and came to the coast of Magdalene. So, Jesus says, I'm not sending them away to the fed. He feeds them, sends them away. Then they go, they get into a ship, and they sail away. The crowd was healed, the crowd was full, the crowd's on their way home. What a, as we look at this, what a great reminder of our actively passionate, compassionate Savior. He, he didn't just look at the situation and say, yeah, I see that, that there's a need. He looked at the situation and we can see his active compassion on display. We see a God that cares. We have a God that cares about us, cares about us spiritually. In his compassion, he provided a remedy for our spiritual, sinful problem. We have a God that cares about us physically. He does care about our, our physical ailments. We can go to him for, for prayer, for healing. That doesn't mean he's always going to heal. But we can go to him, and he does care. And then we have a God that cares about us daily. 
our daily provision. And you can see that all throughout Scripture. It's not me just trying to pull something out of this text. You see it all throughout Scripture that God cares about us in a personal way, and he cares about our personal needs, no matter how small or how great they are. I also enjoyed seeing the disciples' willingness to serve. Jesus was, Jesus is God, yet he served. Philippians 2, 7 tells us he took upon him the form of a servant. Jesus came and then he served. He expected his disciples to do the same. To, to lead this, this servant leadership idea. And I don't believe that, that died with the apostles. I still believe as, as believers today, as, as disciples today, there's this responsibility to serve. To use the, the spiritual gifts that God has given to us, that God has blessed us with, to serve and to help. And yes, we're all gifted in different ways. Some of you might not think you're, you can serve in any way. But we all have, have a way that we can serve. And it's interesting how the body of Christ works, where we all come together and we all use our gifts where we can help each other, where we can encourage each other. And the result of us functioning that way is God being glorified. Which brings us to the, the last and I believe most most important part of this is I love how the crowd glorified God. And I believe that is the proper response to God. When he is in the elevated position that he should be, our response will be glorifying God. The main goal of our life should be glorifying God. The main goal of everything that we do is to bring glory to God. And it made me think of, of one of my favorite verses, or a verse I really, really enjoy, 2 Corinthians 4.15. We won't go into all the context and what's going on here. But what we have is we have Paul writing the, the church at Corinth. It says, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. So we have people going through different things here, and we have, we have Paul giving testimony of different things that he went through in ways that he was persecuted. And he breaks it down and says, through all of this, through all that's going on here, the most important thing is we see glorifying God, redounding glory to God. That word redound means to be abundantly furnished with. So we see, we see ministry happening. We see God working. And the result of the whole thing is glorifying God. God working in us. God, God giving His grace. God ministering. God working. And then our response is glorifying God or magnifying God through it. Couldn't it be so easy as, as we go? In our, I just want to put this, illustrate this real quick, and then we'll be done. We go through, we go through our, our day. Maybe, maybe we've been gifted by God to do certain things. And we, we operate in a certain way, and, and we have a great day where ministry happened this way, and I did this, and I did that, and all this went on. And we could get to the end of our day, and we could say, Man, I'm a great person. Man, God is so lucky to have me in his family. I served him so well today. I am so wonderful. I have this Christian life figured out. Look at me, look at me. That's not 
That's not what redounding the glory of, of God is. It's, it's God, is, God is working and things to be accomplished and praise to him. People come to you, how is this happening in your life? What's going on in your life? You say, my God is great. And we, we redound this glory to God. And we see Jesus performing the, these miracles and we see all this going on. And the response of the crowd is to glorify God. And our response, our life, should be magnifying God and glorifying God. Psalm 69.30. I said I'd be done without teaching. Psalm 69.30. This was the psalm I was, I was going to read this morning uh, to the church. But it says, I will praise the name of God with a song, and I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Magnify means to make large, to lift up, or to promote proudly. If we're created for God's pleasure, our response to Him should be to glorify Him. When we consider the compassion of God, when we consider His daily working in our life, our response should be to magnify, to glorify Him, to make large, to lift up, to promote proudly. We should not live ashamed of our God. That's a wrong view of God if we're living ashamed of our God. So the psalmist says, I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is adoration. And one of the word pictures is a choir of worshipers. On a personal level, that's a big deal. We have an opportunity to worship, to magnify glorify God. And our response should be that. And I, I imagine Thanksgiving on Thursday, you're going to get an opportunity to sit around the table and stand around the table and, and maybe hold hands with your, your family. I don't know what your Thanksgiving tradition is. But what, what a great chance to magnify God. Maybe you have family members who don't believe. But what a great chance we have to magnify God. To glorify God with thanksgiving this week. And maybe it'll catch on and we'll start glorifying God every week. I'm just thankful for the God that, that He is real, that He's alive, that He cares, that He's provided a way for us. And our response should be to glorify Him. Yes. Because He's worthy of all. Dear Father, I thank you so much for this time together. I thank you that we can be reminded of your of your power, of, of your your working and display of, of your compassion. I thank you for the gifts that you have given. I thank you so much for salvation. Thank you for the sacrifice that was made for the atonement that was that was given. I thank you that you are alive. And that we would be very careful, very aware of glorifying you today, every every single day of our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's all stand again.